everyone, and welcome to Pieces of Wisdom, where I interview regional icons, role models, and leaders. In this episode, I'm here with Fiona Nash, former minister and current regional leader. Hello, Fiona, and welcome to the show. Finn, good morning. Lovely to be here. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Sydney, actually, in, um, down south of the city, and was there for about 16 years. So I actually grew up in the city, which is kind of strange when you look at all the work I've done now in regional communities, but was always somebody that wanted to get out of the city. I had an uncle with a farm and learnt to ride when I was four, and so I think I've always had rural Australia in me, and my father was Scottish, he used to farm in, in Scotland, so I think I was never really a city person, and slowly got further and further away from the city. Does the location of your childhood impact your adult life? That's a really good question. I think it does, and for me, for me it certainly impacted my adult life because I was never comfortable in the city, so I knew, I think, that I was a, a, a rural person, and what you learn wherever you are as a young person, I think, impacts your older life. So I learnt to, I suppose, be, be aware of what other people thought and how other people were feeling about things from my young life. So that might have been the same city or country. Like, the city, like, has a fast-paced tone for life. Has that translated into your adult life? I don't know that that has translated itself. I've always been somebody that's pretty driven and likes to do things and I don't like to sit still very much. Um, even on holidays I tend to sort of you know, clean the place we're staying in. <laughs> I tend not to sit down very much. But I, I think it can drive you, that fast-paced city sort of thing uh, certainly drives a lot of people and yeah, I think it could. Uh, do you think that your experiences as a child shaped you into the person you are today? Definitely. I think who you are as a who you are as a child sort of stays with you, and lots of things happen to you when you're young that mould how you are. And I think it's only often sometimes once you get older and you look back on what you've done, you think, yeah, that really did have an impact. Um, certainly, things like riding horses. I used to ride horses a lot when I was a teenager. I got my first pony when I was ten, and having the responsibility of having to look after a horse to, you know, that responsibility of looking after any animal, really, I think does teach you that responsibility that sometimes you, you have to do things you don't necessarily want to and you have to put another living being in front of yourself. So that certainly shaped it. Are there any, like, specific tales that you think have really influenced you today? From my childhood? From your childhood. Wow, that is a really good question. Um, I think from my childhood it would be, it would be actually my mother. My mother was a, was a doctor and she was a doctor back in the days when doctors got up in the middle of the night and went and did house calls and all that sort of thing. So I think she probably shaped me more than anything in my younger years. When my mother was doing medicine at Sydney University, she, um, it was the year after the war ended, so it was 1946, and she had this amazing photo of, because it was open intake and there was no restrictions on the number of students being able to start medicine that year, there was this photo of about 300 people in this, in this photo of first-year medicine. And apart from five women down the front, they were all men. And my mother was one of the five women. And I was just really proud of that. And I think she really shaped me in being able to just really back yourself in whatever you do and, and believe you can do things and then just have a really good go at doing them. 
So as your mother was a doctor, did you ever think you'd go into the health profession? <laughs> no. People used to ask me that a lot when I was younger, Finn, and say, you're going to be a doctor like, like your mother. And I can remember I would always answer saying, no, she works far too hard. Uh, so I never really thought about going into the health profession. It was, I suppose, a bit of an irony that I ended up being Minister for Rural Health along the way. But no, never ever thought about actually going into the health profession. Did you enjoy school? And what did you enjoy about school? Oh, I loved school. Um, mostly. You always have days where it's not quite as good as, <laughs> as you might like. No, I really enjoyed school. I had some very, very good teachers, so I was really lucky. I went to Yowie Bay Primary School, and in Year 3 and Year 5, I had a teacher called Mrs Foy, and she was wonderful and I think really set me on my road to, to learning all the way all the way along. So I was blessed with really good teachers. I really loved the friendships you had at school. I loved learning. I loved thinking. Um, I wasn't always particularly good at it. Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Loved the sport that went with it. I did gymnastics for years and years and years. So yeah, I loved, I loved school. School was great. So you went to Yowie Bay Primary School. Mm -hmm. Was that in the city or the country? Uh, it was in the city. So it was one of the southern suburbs near which that's where I lived, where I grew up at Yowie Bay. And so the primary, infants and primary school I went to was, was at Yowie Bay. When did you move out of Sydney? I was about 16. So it would have been halfway through year 11 and we moved out to outskirts of Sydney, out to Camden and um, had a, a place with a, with a few acres out there and then got further and further away, ended up going to uni at Mitchell out of Bathurst. Do you think the university helps shape a person? Oh, absolutely. And I think not only just from the academic side of things, I think it's also the, the relationships you have with people, the things you learn, the fact that university can open your mind to thinking about things differently. And that's probably one of the great things in life, being able to expand the way you think, to consider things you otherwise might not have. I remember it wasn't just the doing, you know, the, the degree. I did an arts degree. I did English and history. But I remember some of the times at, at uni um, when I was at Mitchell College at Bathurst, which is now Charles Sturt University, um, just sitting around on the lawn with, with other students and just talking about issues and talking about things and people having different views and different ideas and that real contest of ideas that would make you think. And that, I think, is really important in being able to challenge challenge ideas, challenge questions and just to be prepared to think about things and think about how the world is. Does that translate into, into our modern society? Should we still talk about our issues and think about how to solve them. Oh, absolutely. And I th what, what that does, I really believe, is it makes us more aware of, I suppose, other people around us. It makes us more able to understand how other people think. Um, I've always been very partial to, to the line in, in the book To Kill a Mockingbird about um, being able to put yourself in another man's skin. I think it's really important to be able to put yourself into somebody else's shoes and think, well, how are they thinking about this? What are they, what are they concerned about? How are they coming to this particular issue? So, after school, we moved on to other things. Um, minister, were you, what were you the minister of? Yeah, there was a bit of a jump between school and minister, um, but yeah, yeah. It, did end up, it did end up in politics, and 
I ended up in politics, Finn, because I remember a particular occasion sitting around complaining about things. At this stage, I was living out uh, on a farm in the country near Young and Central New South Wales. And I thought, well, if I'm going to complain about things, I should be prepared to get up off my chair and, and get a bit involved. So I joined the local branch of the National Party. That then led on to eventually going into the Senate and becoming a minister. So I had different roles as ministers as along the way. I had responsibility for rural health. I also had responsibility at, a, at another time for regional development, for local government and territories, for regional communications. So all of those areas that are really, really key for people in regional and rural and remote communities, and I was really fortunate to be able to have that opportunity. After being the Minister for Regional Development, what do you think the priority growth areas for regional Australia are? Firstly, I'm really glad you ask about growth because so often people talk about the negative things that are happening in the regions and not the positives. So to talk about growth I think is really, really important and, and well done. Uh, I think the areas for growth are... Obviously, around agriculture, there's a massive opportunity for growth around agriculture, but also for businesses out in the regions and where we've got now such an opportunity with the new world of, of IT and communications and connectivity that people don't have to be in the cities now to, to run a business. They can actually now run it from rural and regional areas. I think there's enormous opportunity for growth using communications. When I look at companies uh, like uh, Bird's Nest, which is a, a clothing uh, clothing business based out of Cooma in New South Wales, tiny little rural town, and the woman uh, running it now has this global internet business which has gone fabulously well from a really small rural town. So I think the opportunities to do that type of thing are just going to grow and grow and grow. How do essential services like health and education impact the regional area's ability to grow? Enormously. To have access to good health services and good education are key, I think, for anyone living in any community. And it's no different for rural communities as it is in city communities. I think people out in rural areas, they know they're not going to have a heart surgeon on every corner but they do expect a reasonable level of access to good health services. That's really important, not only from the perspective of giving people um, a good education by having good schools and good universities like Charles Street University out in the regions, but and obviously health, good health outcomes. It's also really important when we're trying to attract professionals out into our rural areas to fill those workforce gaps because they might be coming for a certain job but often they're bringing a partner or a spouse and children and not only will they look to a job, they will look to see are there good health services, are there good education facilities, are there good social support networks, are there good sporting facilities. So it's not just about the job they're going to, they're looking at that community as a whole and so for that reason health and education are really important out in the rural areas as well. In countries like America where they don't have free healthcare, do you think they should invest in free healthcare and that sort of thing? Oh, far be it for me to tell America what to do about their system, but I think it's a system that's worked very, very well for us. And, and I think there is a responsibility of governments to look after people, particularly 
when they are not as well equipped to look after themselves. So to have the sort of health system we have got, which I believe is really good. I know there there are often you know problems that people raise, but by and large I think it's a really, really good system. And I think people should have access to that good level of health care that they need. So going back to the minister topic, how does one get to be a minister? <laughs> now that is a really good question, Finn. Uh, well, obviously you go in either, in, in terms of the federal parliament, at a, uh, there is a member of the House of Representatives, the lower house, or a senator, the, the upper house. You become a minister because the prime minister of the day chooses you to be part of the ministerial team. How you get to that point, I guess, is being prepared to, to work hard, to learn a lot, to understand issues. Quite often people become good at key areas that they are then recognised for. So some uh, lower house members or senators might have an expertise in a certain area that they think, well, that's a good fit for a certain ministry. Other members of parliament might just be very good, what I would call generalists, who have the ability to really understand any portfolio issue and are suited to go into a whole range of portfolio areas. So if you like, it's a bit, um, it's a bit like the captain picks the team, so <laughs> the prime minister picks the ministers. And uh, I was really fortunate to, to have held the ministry positions that I did. I was very, very, very fortunate. So you're talking about hard work and being prepared to think through problems. Does that, trans does that need for those abilities translate into other areas of the workforce? Do you need those abilities in all jobs you go into? I think, I think to a degree, yes, it does. Because for me, those sort of qualities about, about being the best you can be in whatever field you're in. So it doesn't matter if you're a minister or if you've got some other sort of occupation altogether. If in whatever occupation you're in, you are always striving to be the best you can be, then to me, that's the best possible outcome. So it's not something that's just restricted to ministers. I think it's for all of us in a job doing anything. Um, strive to be the best you can. When Parliament uh, realised that you had British citizenship, they ruled you out of office. Do you think that Australian ministers should be allowed to keep their title if they're dual citizens? My mum's American, so I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think there needs to be absolutely some consideration about the reason that rule came in to begin with and whether or not it is still relevant today. As it was, I wasn't even a British citizen. My father was Scottish, um, but I was born in Australia and I never... I never actually had a British passport or was a British citizen, but because I could have been because of my father, that was that was the outcome of, of having to having to leave Parliament. But it was quite funny because I have two sisters, both of whom were born in the UK. My mother was Australian, but my father over in the UK. Uh, and then they moved back to Australia and I was born here. And my sisters used to tease me when I was little because I didn't have a British passport and I wasn't a dual citizen. So it was a bit of a full circle to coming around to leaving Parliament because I could have been. <laughs> but, um, but I think we need the people in Parliament who have their heart and soul in representing the people and wanting to make things better for the future, for the country. Um, so if the current rule around, around being a dual citizen doesn't, you know, doesn't impact on those things, then I think we need to have a really good think about it. Do you think there should be, like, to some degree that you are a dual citizen? Like, your father was um, British, so, yeah. like, is there a line between, like, having, like, 
maybe half of if half of your family is of another country, then yeah. you shouldn't be allowed in. Whereas like people like you have a a mix, like a fine mix of mm-hmm. of people. So you, you don't re- you're not really a dual citizen, mm-hmm. but you have to be excluded from parliament. Mm. Is should there be a line like that? That's certainly that's certainly worth considering, and I suppose one of the difficulties is that so many countries have different rules around around this issue. So um, many countries have some sort of uh, rule that we were coming across at the time that did impact on some people who were in parliament, but they're all different. So whether or not we need to to revisit it, you know, we we, we probably do, and maybe having some sort of line in there about reflected in what's appropriate for now, for, for Australia now in 2019 and going forward into the, the 2000s, what's the right sort of rule to have to make sure that we get the right people into Parliament, as I say, the people who are prepared to work as hard as they can for the people that they represent. Which issues would you believe should be at the top of the political agenda? From my perspective, making sure people do have the right and good and proper access to healthcare and education, that is really, really important for anyone, wherever you are in the community. I also think at the top of the agenda, and this probably won't surprise you, um, that issues for rural and regional and remote Australia should be at the top of the, at the, top of the list for, go- for governments to consider because it's really important that people out in the regions don't get left behind. We do have a gap between city and country in a lot of areas still that needs to be, if not completely closed, needs to be to be lessened so there's not so much difference between between city and country. And and making sure that I think the the humanitarian nature of, of government continues to exist, that government is there to look after people and to look out for people. And government has a real role to play where people are underprivileged or disadvantaged or can't look after themselves and they need to make sure that they keep doing that. There has been some political discord around whether to let refugees into the country. Would you do this or not? I think the current, I think the current laws are right. Um, we need to make sure in this country that the messages we send to other places are we don't have an open door. You can't just come at will that there is an orderly process for coming to this country if that is what you'd like to do. We don't want to see people harmed or losing their lives trying to get to this country. So we don't want them to feel like there is an open door that they can come through that will make them do that. And I worry a lot about a lot of the refugees who are going through the proper processes and they may well be in refugee camps for years and years and years waiting for their turn to come to another place and I think we have to recognise and respect those people who do things uh, in, that, in that way by the rules. Should the rules be less harsh? Like you're talking about people spending years in refugee camps. Should we make it at least not a complete open door but maybe a little bit more leeway for refugees to be able to get into the country? Because, as you said, it, it, it's hard for them, really hard. It is really hard, and I think anybody with a heart feels for people but that are in those circumstances. But you've also got to make sure that 
within a nation, we are making the decisions that are right for the people in our nation and, and where we're going in the future. And, and I think the balance is pretty right. How could migration and refugee acceptance help bolster regional areas? There have been some fantastic examples, Finn, of where we've had refugees come into communities in the country and that has worked so well, really, really well. There's a little town called Nil in Victoria where they've, um, they've had a, a significant refugee intake and they've worked beautifully with the community and it's been a really, really great positive story. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to do things like that. We certainly can look at workforce gaps where we can get people in to, to fill some of the workforce gaps that we see out in regional communities. We, have, so we certainly have the space and the welcoming attitude out in regional communities to take refugees and I think there's a lot of opportunity to have people settle in our regional communities and I always say why wouldn't you want to go to a regional community? Why would you want to live in the city when you could live out in a region? And that certainly applies to, to refugees and people coming here as well. There's been a lot of discussion about the difficulty of being a woman in the coalition after the resignation or stepping back of several female coalition leaders. What's it like to be a female leader in Australia? It's an honour. That would be my first point. It's a real honour. I was the first woman to ever become the deputy leader of the Federal National Party and I was... Um, yeah, I was very, uh, very humbled by that, that my colleagues had put me in that position. I was really fortunate, Finn, in that my political career, I didn't have any of the uh, difficulties that others might have had between that female, female, male uh, circumstance that, that often arises. People treated me pretty much just for me. Um, I'm reasonably tough, so you know I tended to give it back if I if I got a bit of flack. But it wasn't uh, wasn't anything that was ever um, ever. I felt that was a problem for me. But I know some, some women have felt that and that, is, and that is not to be underplayed in any way at all and some women have felt uncomfortable in situations and they shouldn't be. And I know that there have been some women who have said they've been bullied and, you know, that's an awful circumstance if that's been the case. But I often say bullying is different to different people so what bullying is to one person might be different to another person and, and we're all very different. But at the end of the day, whether we're female or male in politics, we should basically have a decent human trait of trying to be nice to other people uh, rather than not. And I think that should go, should go across the board. So how should we combat... So you're talking... You're just infringing a little bit on this topic. How should we combat this, this circumstance? Call out bad behaviour when people are behaving badly... Uh, and I've seen, and to be fair, I've seen women treat people badly too. So it's not just necessarily a male thing, but I think calling out bad behaviour, not letting people get away with it. So if people are being bullying or are trying to use tactics to get over the top of somebody else that's hurtful or awful, um, that we call it out, we point it out, and that they're held responsible for those actions. Is there a double standard? Different standard for women and different standard for men? Yeah. Yeah, I reckon there has been historically. I would say that um, without too much of a... making too much of a generalisation, I think in, in politics the high jump bar for women can often be high. The expectations on women to perform at a high level 
I think sometimes are higher than men. I've seen circumstances, I guess, to be really frank in the past, where mediocrity is accepted in men in Parliament, where it's not necessarily accepted so much in women. That's not a complaint, it's just an observation. Um, but uh, most of the women I know that were in Parliament just to tend to get on and do things and don't worry too much about the commentary and just get on and do a good job. And there's some really great women in Parliament and I'm so excited to see so many great women now in that federal ministry. It's just terrific. Half the country is female. How did this double standard come to exist? <laughs> that is such a good question. But do you know, Finn, I don't think it's just politics. I think it's across a whole range of occupations and areas. We focus on it in politics because politics is so much in the media and, and people see it very closely. But I think the double standard's there in, in a lot of occupations. I'm, I think if you went out into the workforce and into a whole lot of other professions and you asked them the same question, you'd probably get the same answer, that there is a double standard. How it got there, I don't know. Is it a historical leftover from days of yore where men had positions and women didn't? No, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is. I really believe that the qualities that make a good leader start with what I referred to earlier about being able to put yourself in another man's skin from To Kill a Mockingbird. If you can put yourself in somebody else's position and understand how they're thinking, it makes you a much better leader because the decisions you make are much more the from the perspective of all of the people, not just your own. So that would be the first thing. I think you have to be humble. I think the minute your, your ego gets hold of, hold of you, you're not that good a leader. You've got to be humble and to appreciate, um, appreciate I think, honours and, and places and leadership roles that, that you've been given. You've got to be able to listen. I mean, there's that beautiful phrase of, you know, you've got two, two ears and one mouth for a reason, so you should be listening more than you're talking. Uh, I think that, that makes a good leader. And having the ability to look out for and take care of the people that you're leading. You're responsible for them, you're making decisions for them, uh, and you also have, have a duty of care to look after them. Is there anyone who, who you look up to who possesses these qualities? Uh, my late mother, um, certainly. Uh, Gosh, I think there's, there's a lot of people that, that have those qualities. I, I genuinely um, have great respect for our current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. I think he has tremendous leadership qualities. He has the, the, those abilities that, that I was referring to before. Um, I think there's, there's an awful lot of people, and again, that's something I'll have to think about and come back to you on. <laughs> Is kindness beneficial for a leader? Kindness? Yes. Most definitely, most definitely. If you, if you can't be kind to people, um, again, it comes back to feeling that sort of understanding how other people are feeling. And I think kindness is probably one of the, the best traits a human being can have. If, if you can get through a day and say, yep, I was genuinely kind to somebody today, that's, that's a really nice thing to have at the end of any given day. A leader leads things, yeah. It enact, they enact plans. Is that 
is that something that a leader needs to have, the ability to make things into reality? Absolutely. And you have to have that strength and the drive to do that. So in, in politics, for example, although it's the same everywhere in politics, it's hard to make things happen. Often there are a lot of processes to go through. You have to get people to agree to things. You have to get departments to support things. There are a whole range of, if you like, um, uh, sort of barriers that you can hit when you're trying to do something or to deliver something. So you've got to have resolve, you've got to have tenacity, you've got to have the strength of your conviction, the courage of your convictions and the strength to to do it, and you've got to be stubborn. (laughs) And sometimes you've just got to not take no for an answer and you've just got to keep going and keep going. So, yes, definitely. Can you tell me about your leadership journey? Um. My leadership journey probably started from when I was a child. I liked, I liked leading things. I liked being captain of sports teams. I liked winning things. I, I liked being in control of things. So I think it probably started very early. As I was going through, um, through politics, and I guess there were there were points of leadership along the way. Being involved in the organisation as well being involved in things like the state executive for the party, those types of things. Leading up to my leadership role as deputy leader of the National Party, uh, it was really interesting. About three weeks out, I thought, oh, I'm actually not going to nominate because I thought one of the one of the guys would, would probably win and they would all have a lot more chance than me. And then I was sitting down and I thought to myself, what does it say to every other woman in the country if I'm not prepared to put my hand up and have a go? if I'm not prepared to try. Uh, And so I did. And so that was really how I ended up being in that position. And I genuinely thought I could do a good job. I genuinely thought I had the qualities that the deputy leader would need in that because it is a mix of a leadership role as deputy leader, but it's also there as the supportive role to the leader. And I think that's something very, very important uh, in that deputy leader role as well. That's how I ended up there, and I was fortunate enough. Enough of my colleagues decided to vote for me and put me in that position. So, what you just talking about with um, running for the was it state government that you were just talking about? Ah, uh, federal, yeah. federal government. Yeah, so, it was, yeah. That was an example. Was that an example of you doubting yourself? Yeah, it was, and I doubted myself a lot along the way. There were many, many times I've never sort of had had much of an ego, so. I was always thinking, oh, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am, I, am I making the right decisions? Am I heading down the right track? And then I would think, no, just back yourself. You know you are. Um, you know you're doing the right thing and just stick on the track. So there are lots of moments along the way where I would look back and say, yes, I doubted myself, but got over that and was just prepared to back myself and push things on anyway. And I was really fortunate in getting some of the, the outcomes that I did and delivered the things that I could. Was your doubt somewhat, we were talking about the double standard before, was your doubt sort of inflicted, like, was it exacerbated, like, exaggerated by that? Did you feel that you had to meet a standard or do certain things to become a leader? Because I was a woman? Do you yeah. mean? Yeah. Um, no, no. My, my doubting and, and self-doubt was purely from me, not because I was a woman in that, in that world, in that environment, I think. It... Um, as I say, I was really fortunate that that being a woman in that environment, um, I wasn't impacted by not being 
a man, I suppose. I've, yeah. Yeah. Do you have advice for young aspiring political minds? Again, asking for a friend. <laughs> um, yes, I do. Stick to what you believe in and, and back yourself. If you think that you have a, 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 a role to play and you have qualities that you think would be good as a politician, then absolutely back yourself. People used to say to me, what's it like you know, being a politician? What's it like being a senator? And I would say, I am no different to anybody else living in my community. I just happen to have the job. Because political representation is truly that. It's, it's representing the people. And all of the people in Parliament are just people from communities. They're not special. They didn't come down off some special mountain with special qualities to be a parliamentarian. So it's about recognising the qualities that you've got that you think would make a good politician and, and backing yourself to, to put those in place and, and following, following a road to get there. I always used to say to people, though, that if you think you might want to be a politician one day, do that in parallel with how your life is currently going. Because I've seen people get so focused on wanting to get into Parliament and then it doesn't happen and they get really disappointed. So you've kind of got to do it in parallel with your life path that is ordinarily taking its course. So after your ministerial, the ministerial section of your life, um, you went out of Parliament and you went into Charles Sturt University. So what was your role around that? Oh, I was very fortunate to, having had left Parliament, to now be with Charles Sturt Uni. When, when I left Parliament, the Vice-Chancellor, Andrew Van, um, approached me and said, look, when I think about maybe coming to the university, he didn't know what it would be or what it would look like, but they were keen for me to think about maybe a role with the university, which I was very keen to do. So I took on a role with them as their strategic advisor, uh, community engagement and regional development. So effectively, it was all of the community, community relationship work between our university and the communities that we're in. Because we've got six main campuses across New South Wales. Dubbo's one of them, obviously. But we also have Port Macquarie, Orange, Bathurst, Wagga and Aubrey and some other smaller campuses as well. So our relationship with those communities is really important. We want to be part of the fabric of those communities. We want to do planning for the future with the councils, with the organisations, with the businesses. And we want to make sure that we make a really strong contribution to ensuring we've got sustainable regional communities into the future. So that's my role, to work a lot with those communities look at opportunities for that regional development and as of a few months ago I've added into that role uh, the government relations work as well so I do all the work for the university with the state and federal government with the ministers and and uh, and people in departments so it's been quite funny doing that from the other side. <laughs> You're talking about well from what I'm hearing what you're aspiring to do do you are you achieving that do you think you're achieving what you're meant to be doing? Look, I think we are. And I'm really proud of this university for so many of the things that we do. But one of the things 
is that we give people an opportunity to learn that otherwise might not have had. So we have some of the highest students, uh, student numbers at our university of people who are the first in their family to go on to university. And I think having that opportunity is just a game changer for people so often. We um, graduate the highest number of Indigenous students which, again, I'm really proud of that and we're really proud of at the university. But we've also got the um, highest starting salary and most graduates in employment three years after graduation of any university in the country. And a lot of people don't know that. So we're doing a lot, I think, already. And with the community, we're working really, really closely with the communities. We want people here in Dubbo to feel like Charles Sturt University is their university and the same in all of the other towns, that we're there for them and to be part of the community and what the community is going to do going forward. Why did the job at CSU interest you? Because it was doing something that mattered for regional communities and in my, in my previous job that's very much what I was focused on, hoping to make a difference for people who lived in the regions. This role, while it's quite different to politics, it's still working with all of those regional communities and still matters for people in regional communities. One of the most important things you can do people, for people is give them access to education and give them opportunities to further their education. That really matters and that's what I'm part of doing every day and that's very, very exciting and very rewarding. <laughs> So I heard you are living out at Narromine. How's life out there? Oh, I love Narromine. It is absolutely fabulous. So I have 25 acres uh, just this side of Narromine towards Dubbo. I have two horses, Woody and Wiley. I have two dogs, Jess and Lulu. And I really love it. That's That sort of small community, I love that sense of people who actually you know, care about each other, have each other's backs, and just that lovely, beautiful sense of, of having space and... People who actually, as I say, look out for each other, which is fantastic. When I moved there, I was actually thinking, well, where do I want to go? Where do I want to live? And I thought, well, I know I can work out of any of the campuses across the state, but I didn't want to live in a regional city. And I thought, well, where's within a reasonable drive of one of those cities where I'd like to move? And Narromine won, and I'm really happy there. It's true. Listeners, one piece of wisdom that you wish you had at our age? Oh, gosh, there's probably a few. Um, the, one, the one I think that is, that, it, that is probably really key is there's, there's no failure in not winning. The only failure is in not trying for things in the first place. Wow. <laughs> inspiring well thank you for this great interview great piece of wisdom good luck with CSU and all all your other things thanks for coming Fiona oh thanks Finn it's been lovely to be here talking to you and I suspect in the future at some point I'll be able to say I knew Finn when he was doing podcasts at school <laughs> thanks so much for having me on Finn. thank you